We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 12, John chapter 12. As church, we've been marching slowly and steadily through the book of John over the past year. The book of John is a biography that's been written about Jesus Christ, uh, a biography that was written so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. And it's important to remember that that's a, a present tense believing, so when we're in the rut, when we are in the valleys, when we're in the pit, um, that we would continue to believe. And in particular, John's gospel, as we've seen throughout, um, has been a, a, a gospel that's really written for those of us who, who've been Christians for a while, and maybe we're, we're starting to feel the, the pressures of the world, and maybe the newness of the, of the faiths has kind of lost its uh, luster and lost its new car smell, and um, that it, we've kind of gotten into a routine and, and maybe we're in the place now where we're starting to wonder, is it still worth it to believe in Jesus? Is it still worth it to follow him, even knowing all the concerns, all the pressures, all the thorns, all the thistles, all the difficulties? Is it still worth it to believe in Jesus? And we saw that the, that story really climaxed um, the first half of the chap of the book of John uh, last week, um, the the raising of Lazarus really was kind of the culmination of everything he said so far in the gospel, uh, and we're starting off the second half of the gospel of John this morning in in John twelve, and we'll we'll see that this story begins the the last week of Jesus' earthly life as he's preparing for his life, death, and resurrection. And uh, we'll, we'll see how the, the instructions that Jesus gives us in the Gospel of John prepare us for that day. So um, we're going to be in John. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 55, and then we're going to work our way down through chapter 12, verse 11. It says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? They will not come to the feast at all. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was going to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the crowd, large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father in heaven, one more time we ask that you would open up your word to us. You help us to see what is there. And Father, that you would cause your word to dwell in our hearts by faith, and that we 
we would come to see your son for all that he is. Pray that you give us faith and sight and life this morning. Pray for these things in the name of your son and by your spirit. Amen. It was probably the smell that most people noticed. It was probably the scent that filled the room, the, the perfume that, that filtered to every crack and crevice. And it was, it was a scent that, that was particularly poignant, not just because all strong scents are, but because only a few weeks ago, those same people had, had come together and smelled the smell of rotting and decaying flesh. As they had said goodbye to their friend Lazarus and and then in surprise, Jesus had them roll away the door of the tomb and they had seen him, they had seen Lazarus walk out. And maybe some of them who were there at this time actually had themselves taken the burial clothes off of Lazarus so that he could be set free, so that he could go. Now some of those who were there were there watching uh, and smelling and listening as Mary with tears in her eyes and, and perfume in her hands, breaks this jar and anoints the feet of Jesus, wiping, it with, wiping them with her own hair. This is a profoundly rich story, the anointing of, of Jesus at Bethany, and it's profoundly rich in particular uh, as John retells it. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about anointing Jesus, then I want to talk about pictures of Jesus. So anointing Jesus, we'll walk through the story, and then pictures of Jesus. There's two pictures of Jesus that this story is intertwining together, and then we'll turn to apply this. So this, this story starts off um, in the Passover season. And for the Passover season, Jews would come up, and Jerusalem would swell uh, many times its, its population to accommodate the, the crowds that would come. And, and the crowds would come, and um, they would often purify themselves the holiest day, the holiest festival of, of the Jews of the first century. And so the crowds came from all over the Mediterranean world, but especially all over uh, Judea and Palestine. And they came and they gathered in Jerusalem. They came to purify themselves. And we're, we're told that as they're there in Jerusalem, they're, they're kind of asking each other, they're asking themselves, what do you think? Is he going to come up? Is Jesus going to come up? And and the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, have already given instruction, they've already ordered, they've already let it be known to everyone who's there, that if Jesus should show his face, that they would be able to arrest him. They should let him know so they could arrest him. This is the context that this story starts, and it's, it's only a few short weeks and months after what Jesus has done in Bethany with Lazarus. And Jesus Jesus, we know, as if we have any kind of church background, that he's going to go and he's going to come and die and be resurrected. And so this kind of setting the scene, setting the context for the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Now, we're told that the first stop Jesus makes when he gets to Jerusalem for this feast, the first stop he makes is in Bethany. Is in Bethany, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the first place Jesus goes on his way to die on the cross and be risen from the grave. And he, he stops in the house of a man named Simon. We've, we find that from the other Gospels. Where, and Simon apparently was the um, kind of an elder of the town. He kind of 
he kind of was one of the, the local town mucky mucks. And so um, he threw a big party for Jesus to honor him for what he had done uh, to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Martha is serving with the, with the servants. She's, um, Martha is helping out behind the scenes. And Lazarus was reclining at table with Jesus. And so this is the scene. And, and you, you see Martha and you see Lazarus and you start to wonder, where's, where's Mary? Where's Mary at? We know this is a trio, and we know the three siblings kind of travel together, so and they go together. So where is Mary? Well, we're, we're told in verse 3, it says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. It's an it, a expression that implies the, the great expense to which Mary went to um, anoint the feet of Jesus. And it's an expression which indicates how much, how expensive this was. And we're, we're told in a minute here that it's worth 300 denarii. That's a whole year's worth of wages. Um, and she takes the, the jar and she anoints the feet of Jesus and she wipes the, her, uh, his feet with her hair. And the, the whole house gets filled with the fragrance of this perfume, with the smell of the perfume. Now, What's significant about this story um, in verse 3, in making sense of this image of, of this woman wiping her Jesus' feet with her hair, um, it, is a, it is a profound picture. You see, um, the, you, you have to understand, in the Middle East, even still today, the, the, the foot, the feet, is the dirtiest, grossest, most unclean part of the body. You know, people are walking around with sandals and their feet get all dusty and dirty and cracked and bloody and calloused and just disgusting. And, and therefore, you don't touch feet, especially not if you're a free person, especially not uh, if, you're, if, if you don't have to. And, and so it was kind of considered the most dishonorable part of the body. Uh, by contrast, for women in particular, we, we see elsewhere in Scripture that hair is the most honorable part of the body. It's the part of the body that, the, that they would spend the most time on. And, and so when Mary pours perfume on Jesus' feet and she scrubs the feet of Jesus clean with her own hair, what she's saying is that the, the most dishonorable part of Jesus is still more worthy than the most honorable part of me. It's an act of profound extravagance. It's an act of profound humility, of profound submission. A profound faith. You couple this with the fact that from all indications, uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus are not extraordinarily wealthy people. Yet Mary, and this is totally in fitting with her personality, um, extravagantly spends a year's worth of wages, probably without telling Martha, to get this perfume and wash the feet of Jesus. It is a profound reality what we what we see in this story. It is it's almost reckless with its extravagance. That the symbolism and the meaning is thick in this story. And then you see in verse four Judas Iscariot's response, and and John kind of he he teases it up. He he he's already told us some things about Judas in his gospel, but. He, he, he tells how Judas responds to this. And Judas is, of course, the one who's going to betray him. And Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And, and that might be a dig at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' social position. 
it might kind of be like an implied, why don't they just use the money to meet their essential needs? You know, if they have, if they can use this money, why don't they use it to feed themselves? Um, certainly it's, a, it's, he's implying that the, the use of this perfume for this purpose is not fitting. After all, shouldn't we give to the poor? Shouldn't we take care of those who, who, don't, who are the least of these? Shouldn't we reach out to those who have less than us? And, and we see in verse 6 his reasoning for seeing this. John says he said this not because he cared about the poor. The reality is Judas could have cared less about the poor. But because he was a thief. And see, he had, a, he had charge of the money back. He was the treasurer of the group. And he used to help himself to what was put into it. So whatever, you know, he, whatever was in the treasury, he'd take out of it. And he would, he would use that for his own good. And so if, if he could have convinced uh, uh, them to put the money for, the, uh, for that perfume into the, the, the treasury, then he could have had usefulness of it. He could have had access to it. Now, I, I want us to notice what happens in verse 6. That's a subtle thing, but it's important because we all do this. Judas justifies his own sin, excuses his own sin, circumvents his own sin, rather than confessing it and being honest about it, by drawing attention to the perceived fault of somebody else. By drawing attention to what, what the, Mary is doing wrong, Judas takes the attention off of himself. It's a, it's a profound act of ju- self-justification, of, of seeking someone's significance by putting another person down. And Jesus is not going to put up with it. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Three, three important things in how Jesus responds here. Three important things. First off, First off, Jesus is foreshadowing his own death. We're, we're going to see this in, in the chapters as they unfold, that the death of Christ looms over the rest of this story like a curtain that is halfway down. And so Jesus says that she may prepare it for my own burial. He also implies that it is fitting and appropriate and worthy that Mary would be so extravagant in her adoration of him. It's fitting, and it's worthy, and it's right, and it makes sense, and it's logical, and it is appropriate that Mary would be so extravagant in her worship of him that she would spend this great excess on him rather than meeting her own needs. And then Jesus puts the weight back on Judas and says, you know, you will always have the poor with you. In other words, Judas, if you care so much about the poor, why don't you do something for them yourself? To which Judas has no response. We're told that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the Jews come up from Jerusalem, not only because of Jesus himself, but because of Lazarus, whom had been raised from the dead, whom had come back from the grave. And they, they, the chief priests, they, they make these plans so that they can put Lazarus to death because, because many Jews are going over to Jesus and believing in him on account of Lazarus. And this is the story that prepares us for the last week of the life of Christ as he goes, and we'll see next week as he enters into Jerusalem and as the gospel goes out to many nations fulfilling the promise to Abraham and, and as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. 
But there's, there's two, two pictures of Jesus that, that this passage wants us to see, two images, two understandings, two aspects of who Jesus is that this passage wants us to see and puts together and kind of melds together. And this passage relies on the imagery and the understanding of, of these two pictures of Jesus. And, and we're going to see that this is not the only place where John wants us to understand these two things go together. The first is that Jesus is king. That Jesus is king. We've been told throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a, is a reference to Daniel 7 where we're told that there's this prophecy of the Ancient of Days seated on the throne and how the Son of Man will come and take His rightful place next to Him and He will reign with Him forever and establish the kingdom that will have no end. We've already seen in the Gospel of John that uh, the Jews in chapter 6, they, they want to make Him king by force. And whenever you see in the Old Testament that there's going to be a new king, that king is always anointed. You'll remember the story of King David when King David was getting ready to take uh, the when when he was called to be the king and Samuel came and he appointed he anointed him as king over Saul. You can't read this story and not see that Jesus is preparing to enter into his kingdom. He's being anointed and prepared to to become king. You can't read this and understand it any differently. That Jesus' anointing right here is, it has all these similarities to all this anointing of the kings of the Old Testament. That, that Jesus is entering into his reign and his rule as, as the Son of Man who sits next to the Ancient of Days and establishes the kingdom forever. This is why we read the, the, the Psalm 45, which is one of the songs that they sang probably as they coronated new kings in Judah and Israel earlier. Which says in verses 7 and 8, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. When, when a new king comes into his kingdom, when he's being prepared to reign and to rule and to establish his kingdom over all people, he's anointed. Kings are anointed before they step onto the throne. And it's impossible, I think, to read this passage and not see it as Jesus being anointed to take his kingdom, to rule and to reign as our Savior, as the promised Messiah. This is the king. The second image is that of the Passover lamb. It's that of the Passover lamb. We see a couple foreshadowings of the burial of Christ. That Christ is being prepared for his burial. He's being the poor you have all you always have with you, but you don't always have me. The death of Christ is being foreshadowed. He's gonna, Jesus is gonna be betrayed and handed over. And, and it's right next to this phrase about the Passover of the Jews. You know, John's doing that on purpose. John's putting the story of the anointing of Christ as king next to this, the, the, these references to Passover on purpose. He, he wants us to see them in relationship to one another. That Jesus is being prepared to be the Passover lamb. You know, in, in the, the story of Passover, how Passover was originated, comes from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel were in captivity in the land of Egypt. And God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, nah, I'm all right. So God sent plague after plague to pry the fingers off of the children of Israel. But Pharaoh would not loosen his grip. 
And so the 10th plague comes and God warns Pharaoh that the 10th plague is going to come. And Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go. And so in the night, God sends the angel of death through the camp. Sends the angel of death and the angel of death comes and he, he, he strikes the, the firstborn of every house, irrespective of background, irrespective of ethnicity. Didn't matter what the household was that the, the angel of death struck, if, it, it, that he was coming through there and he was going to strike the firstborn of every household in the, the land of Egypt. But there was only one way to avert it. There was to take a lamb. And it didn't matter who took the lamb. It didn't matter if it was an Egyptian or an Israelite. They were to take the lamb and they were to slaughter the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost. And when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, he would look and he would see if, if the household had, had blood splattered over the doorpost. And if there was blood there, then the angel would pass over those households. And forever after, that, that, that symbol of the lamb who would be slain and, and who would atone for the sins of the household, that's the sins of the people of God, was, was always celebrated at Passover. Whenever there was a revival, whenever Israel would come back to the Lord, it would always occur in conjunction with the celebration of Passover. And so when John tells us that Jesus is anointed at Passover, he's implying that Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb. After all, Jesus has already been said in John 1.29 to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've already been told that he's the Passover Lamb who will be slain and his blood too will be put over on, on splintered wood so that the, the wrath of God might pass over the people of God. We, we see this image applied to Jesus, for example, in the book of Revelation 7. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, we're told this. He was oppressed. It's a prophecy about the Messiah to come. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That the Messiah that would come would come to reign. Um, He would come and he would be the Passover lamb who would be slaughtered for the sins of the people of God. And by his blood, he would make many to be accounted as righteous. Now, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, neither of those two things are going to be a surprise, I would hope. I'm not seeing a lot of surprise this morning, and that's good. It means I've done my job up until now. But what you see in this passage is those two images go together. Is that when Jesus comes into his kingdom is when he comes up onto the cross. Is that the king reigns from the cross. The kingdom of, of God is established with the death of the Son of God. Jesus reigns as the Passover lamb. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the good shepherd who got, climbs up onto the cross and spreads his own blood over so that the sheep might pass through unscathed. Jesus is the lamb who is, who, who is slaughtered for the sins of his people. You know, this is not the only place where the author John 
make, draws this connection between these two images. One, two of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, um, I might preach through Revelation just so I can preach through these chapters, is Revelation 4. Some of you are dreading that, and some of you are way too excited about that. But Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 and 5, you see this, this image, or John, is, he gets a vision of the throne room of God, very much like Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel. And he sees that on the, on the throne is seated one like the ancient of days, and he, he sees that there's four living creatures around, and there are myriads of angels all around, and the, there's a sea, sea that is in front of him that is torrented, and there's, it's raging like a storm, and yet it still is glass. And he hears the, the, the praise and the refrain of all peoples from, from, from beginning to end, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he, he sees this wonderful worship service taking place in heaven. And, and then the one who's seated on the throne holds out a scroll for him. And in that scroll is contained many things, especially the book of life. And John begins to weep because he doesn't know anybody who's worthy to open up the scroll. He doesn't know anyone who can, who can open up the scroll and who can, un, who can number the sheep of God. He doesn't know anybody who can do that. And then an angel points him and says, there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. And he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and he says, there I saw him, the lamb of God standing as though he had been slain. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the lamb of God. He is the lion who is the lamb, the the lion who is sacrificed as the lamb for the sake of his people, which is why all peoples break out into song in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus reigns as the king from the cross. Jesus establishes his kingdom through the cross. Jesus enters into his authority as the one who purchased it at the cost of his own blood. Christians, the anointing of Jesus is to anoint the one who would go to establish the kingdom through his own death. The adoration and the worship that Mary gives him in this chapter is as the, is as the king who reigns from the cross. And for any worship that we would give him, any praise, any laud, any glory, any words of affection must come to him not only as the king, but as the king who reigns from the cross and as the lion who suffered as the lamb and as the the king who acts as our priest, who's gathered us into one nation from every tribe and language and people. Christians, The the God that we worship is the one who came and who dwelt among us and died for our sins and drank the wrath of God to the dregs. And when he steps up onto the cross, that's when he purchases the right to step up onto the throne. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we praise. Which means a number of things for you and I as, as we seek to apply this passage in our daily life number of things. Let me give you eight. The 
There are only sinners welcome in the kingdom. There are only sinners welcome in the kingdom. If the king establishes his kingdom through the cross, if the only way that Jesus climbs up on the throne is by climbing up onto the cross, then only those whom Jesus has died for, only those who give their sins to Christ and take his righteousness are welcome into the kingdom. Only those who get off their high horse and humble themselves are citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet, if you're here this morning and you feel the weight and the shame and the pain of guilt, and you feel like there's something that is in your life that you just, you, you just feel like has indelibly marked you, that you can't wash off no matter how hard you try, and the only one who can even resolve that for you is Christ, then that means that you are welcome in the kingdom of God. There are only sinners welcome in this kingdom. And maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never uh, asked Jesus to be your Savior. And I, I like to say it's si- real simple. You just pray to him and say, Jesus, would you uh, take all of me and give me all of you? You take all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my pain, Will you give me all of you, all of your righteousness, all of your holiness, all of your affection? I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. And yet, would you give that to me? Uh, Number two, he alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our worship. The, The question I think that I should, that, I should ask, and I'm, I'm applying this to my own life, my own heart, my own mind. When Christianity becomes drudgery for me, when it becomes more duty than, uh, than devotion, the question that I need to ask is, is there anybody else who's more worthy? Is, it, is, is there anything that is more worthy for me to do than to give my time and my energy and my family and my finances and my job and, and, and everything that I have to him. Who else is worthy of these things? Who else can uphold them? Who else can sustain them? Who else can rule over them? Who else's reign is good? He alone is worthy. I've demonstrated to myself and to plenty others a thousand times that I am not worthy of those things. And yet far too often, I, I allow myself to put myself in his place on the throne. And I think that this whole world revolves around me and not around him. But he is worthy, absolutely worthy. He, is, he alone is worthy of all that we have. Number three, sin starts small. Sin starts small. You see the progression that's happened here, right? Judas is going to go, and he's going to betray the Son of God. He's going to sell him like livestock. Nobody starts there, right? None of us start that terrible, terrible act. That's the end game. Where does it start? 
Well, for Judas, it started taking just a couple of pennies out of the money box. Just a couple of dollars, nobody noticed. Not like they were going to use it anyways. And Judas himself is poor, so why not help the poor? Start off probably with something that other people would have looked at and said, I understand. And by the time that this chapter rolls around, it's, it's already become a trunk in his heart. And he's already put this sin in, into a closet. And he's already hoped that nobody else would see that it's growing and it's poking and it's leaves through the wall. And he's, he's already hoped that nobody would find it. And he has not yet understood what it means to eat the fruit of that vine. Sin starts small. If you're here today and you are harboring something, you're thinking this is just mine. Nobody else is going to know about it. Nobody else is going to think about it. It's never going to come out into the open. I'm just going to put it into a closet. I'm going to brush it under the rug. I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. I promise you it will come out into the open. How much better to pull it out by the roots yourself than to have Christ have to open up, open up the closet door? It very well could be that maybe some of you will need to go home and confess things to your spouses things to your children. It very well could be that you will need to, with great pain and tears, drag that sin out into the open. You know, I promise you, you do not want to eat the fruit of that vine. It is better to confess sin and bring it out into the open and to feel the sting and the pain of confession. Because through confession comes forgiveness than it is for somebody else to discover it and for you to have to deal with the consequences and not the cause. Sin starts small. Number four. Christians, let us not justify our sins by drawing attention to the perceived faults of others. That's what is going on here. That's what's happening is Mary is... is doing something and that's extravagant and frankly kind of weird. And Judas throws shade her way so that nobody will look at his own heart. And it's easy to judge Judas for that. And yet how often do we do the same thing? How often do we draw attention to the faults of others and we say things about them and we put them in the worst light and ourselves in the best light to draw significance from that. And because Jesus loves us, he will have none of that. Christians, we ought not to try to justify ourselves, but to, to try to find our only righteousness in Jesus' life. Christians, if you and I loved the Lord, we would seek after him, and that means that we ought not to try to justify ourselves at the expense of others. It's one of the most subtle most, most subtle, most destructive ways of self-justification is by putting the, the spotlight on somebody else and putting a cloak over ourselves. Number five. Notice how Jesus applies the eighth commandment here. Notice how Jesus applies the Eighth Commandment. 
See, Judas is very clearly a thief. That word is used. He's used very clearly that Judas is a thief. And, and Jesus' application of the Eighth Commandment is, is not, well, stop taking what doesn't belong to you, but rather start using what God has given you to serve other people. Those are two different things. We often think of the Eighth Commandment as, I'm just not going to take something that doesn't belong to me. But the Eighth Commandment is really, God has given us resources and goods that we could serve one another. God's given us homes and cars. He's given us what he's given us so that we can serve others, so that we can love our neighbor, so that we can love our family and love our church and love those who are close to us. Jesus has given us what he's given us so that we can serve other people. The poor you will always have with you. The, the, the onus is on us. The weight is on us. It's very similar to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians where Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The Eighth Commandment is about using what God has given us to serve other people, trusting that he's given us enough. He's given us enough for today, and therefore we're going to use what he's given us to, to accomplish the ends that he's given us, to serve the people in our lives. And we, sh- we should not be thieves. Uh, number six. We also should not be deceptive. Let's not be deceptive. Let's not be liars. Now, you could say that what Judas says in verse five is technically true. 300 denarii actually could do a lot of good. A year's worth of wages actually could do a lot of good for poor people. But what Judas is doing is being deceptive. He's, he's hiding the truth. He's, he's manipulating and massaging the truth so that he's not found out. So he's saying what is technically true to create a reality and a picture that is not. He is certainly not using the truth to serve others. Again, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That Judas is here, he's using the truth in a way that, that doesn't fit with the whole picture. It doesn't cohere with the whole picture. It doesn't match all the facts of the case for a number of purposes, one of which is to take the weight off of him rather than, rather than to um, tell the truth. And number seven, I think we all ought to ask ourselves, this is going to be a strange question, but that's okay. What do we smell like? What do we smell like? See, Mary here smells like the aroma and the fragrance of thanksgiving. She doesn't have the odor of death on her. And, And what I mean by this question is, all of the Christian life ought to be driven and motivated by a profound thanksgiving for all that he's done for us and for all that he's given us. We ought to be thankful for all that the Lord has equipped us with and blessed us with. We, in other words, we ought to smell like thanksgiving. We ought not smell like entitlement. We ought not smell like those who, are, who feel like they're owed something. 
But we ought to be marked by thanksgiving and thankfulness and cheerfulness for all that the Lord has done for us. Number eight, finally. There will be a day when, like Mary, our tears are turned to joy. When the Lamb who is seated on the throne will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where death and dying will be no more. And sickness itself will waste away. And we'll be with the Lamb for eternity. You notice that the stark contrast in the picture of Mary between these two passages. Mary, in, in the last chapter, in chapter 11, was barely able to speak to Jesus. She was so overcome with sorrow. And here she's barely able to speak to Jesus because she's overcome with joy. Christians, there will be a day when our tears of sorrow will turn to joy. When everything that is sad will come untrue. And every scar will serve to sing his praises. Christians, let us look forward to that day with joy and expectation. Even as we live through the day, what today has for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that your son reigns from the cross. That his kingdom and his reign is good. And it's from everlasting to everlasting. Thank you that he is a king of joy. That he wipes away every tear from our eyes. And Father, even though we're here in this broken, frail, mortal world, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to smell like those who are thankful and joy-filled. Father, we pray that you would put that song on our lips that it would redound to your praises. Father, we pray that every scar that we have would turn to a song of joy. And we trust you that what you are doing through us is not in vain. You have not abandoned us. And rather, you are working even now to work in each of us an eternal glory. It's in the name of your Son, our Lamb, that we pray. Amen.